0: thinking he's probably got a room reserved for like a specific amount of time i do but uh, yeah,
1: yeah but i got it for a chunk so okay. we'll, we have it
0: yep, a so this is where you record this
1: is yeah cool. yeah, yeah, yeah. it's it's pretty nice and i live on uh broadway in like 19th street so oh yeah not, yeah oh far. cool yeah. you have a house or you ran yeah or we, we bought a house nice yeah.
0: 19th street and broadway yeah I'm trying to think where's what's over there 19th street and broadway um is that uh are you southeast of the ranch market?
1: Ye- I think we're northeast. I think the ranch market is on southern and.
0: No, there's one on um, almost at the freeway. There might be no. Oh, there's right. one right at the freeway at 16th. Like you get off on 16th if you're going east, and, and it's right there.
1: Oh, 16th and Roosevelt. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, we're south of... Yeah, you're yeah. south of that. So yeah.
0: south of that. Oh, but you're way south because you're on Broadway. So that's like way south of Washington and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. What What neighborhood is that? It's... Um,
1: why in the world can I think of it?
0: Is it, is it does it have a name? Like,
1: you know, I don't think it has, some, think it has name name a name. I don't know what the
0: name of mine is. There's a piece of concrete that says something. I don't know.
1: I don't think so. I think it's just... Yeah, <laughs> we're there and then there's a prostitutes on the corner so that's pretty cool <laughs> um but uh on yeah, the corner.
0: yeah that's cool
1: it's been pretty how have you been
0: i've been well i've been well been uh through lots of changes since i last year when, when did we last see you i think
1: pastorella
0: wow that's been yeah. three years right uh i believe so I yeah think are... done, I, I, like i keep if i don't have to do that i have this play coming up and if i don't have to do that like if it gets bumped because it's a Partnership with ASU Gammage. Okay. and so if it doesn't get bumped, then I have to do it, or they'll like, you know, disown me, and <laughs> my oh name will be mud. Yeah. But if for some reason they bump it, um, then I want to do a pastorello this year, and I haven't done one in three years. So. Yeah.
1: Why is is it just circumstance or uh,
0: pastorella? Yeah, yeah. Why haven't yeah, you? Yeah. Mainly, yeah. Mainly that. Mainly either other projects or you know, just con- schedules didn't work. Or, yeah.
1: What I really loved about being in that one is you, you take stuff happening in the real world. And yeah. then I, I think yeah. I saw another one either the year after or two years after. Yeah. Um, and it was just a little bit different then. And so, um, and I think you did another play, or maybe I'm mixing them up, about uh, 1070.
0: Oh, that was a folding um, play just about 1070. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you came to see that? I, yeah, yeah. The oh, cool, um, things
1: And I really loved how you take things currently happening yeah. Uh, what yeah. what draws you to that specific? That's you know. That's
0: I think that's just my the journalist in me. Okay. Because I've always done journalism, sometimes more intensely than others, and, and right now I'm kind of moving back into the journalism world uh, with some projects. But it's always there, so I think it's just that. Something in the news that's happening real time, you know, moves me or or makes me laugh. Right? Yeah, yeah, and then I go, oh yeah, and, it's, and it sparks a story. And so a lot of my plays have been connected to contemporary kind of current events stuff. You know, yeah, maybe more palpably than than a lot of playwrights because because I have the news background. Right.
1: right. And how long have you been interested in journalism? Oh gosh, I've
0: been doing it since um, I've been do I did it. Uh, uh poorly uh, uh, in 1984 okay and by that i mean uh, uh i had this i got hired to write uh a once a week i think it was a once a week article about city council in Fort Wayne, indiana for twenty dollars an article and okay. i didn't know what i was doing at all they're just like we need someone to write this, and I'm like, okay. So I go over there and I take notes and try to write something, and I'm sure it was a piece of shit. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know, no. and then, and, but you know, but I didn't know any better, right? And then I'm like, oh, twenty dollars. I made twenty dollars. Right. And then I went from there to college in. Uh, now I went from there to Laredo, Texas, uh, because I wanted to go to UT Austin, and so uh, I went to Laredo, Texas, and then I couldn't find a job to save my life as a waiter. Because I was a waiter in uh-huh. Fort Wayne, I was going to school in Fort Wayne, but I wanted to finish my degree in Texas, and I could not find a job. And because I was apparently such a lousy journalist, I did know that the unemployment rate was like eighteen percent when I got to Laredo because oh. the oil market had crashed, right? Yeah, and it's so dependent on oil. So I could, was like I could go to restaurants, and they were like, they were like, we don't have any work. We don't have any work. And then I'm like, shit, you know, I was getting desperate. So I went to the newspaper Uh and and it was like showed up at the newspaper. And and, uh, I said, I'm looking for a job. And the receptionist is like, well, let me call Mr. Boldy. I think is what his name is. Let me call him up there. And he was like the managing editor and he comes out. He's like, yeah. And I said, I'm looking for a job. And he goes, Well, can you write? And of course, I'm like, Yeah, (laughs) yeah, of course, (laughs) of course I can. (laughs) I can juggle too, you know. (laughs) And then he goes, Okay, well here's. And then back then, that was back in the day. They they had like this sheet of paper that had like ten facts about something, like a car wreck, right? Just random facts. And then they would just hand it to you, and they'd go sit at that computer and just write a story. So you know, so I sat down and wrote this thing. And he looked at it, kind of looked up at me, and looked at it, and he's like, Okay, you're hired. And I'm like. Okay, and so when right. do I start? He goes three o'clock, like that day. Oh wow, damn! <laughs> so I was, like, I was nice. like, okay, well, I just gotta go change my shirt. I don't know, <laughs> I, I did something to kill time, right? And then I came to work, and then and that was so that was my first like daily newspaper reporting job. And I came to work at three, and and uh, and then I was and I was the cops reporter. That's that's what they needed me to do. It was okay. cover cops. And, and, and my first story, something came across the radio, and I didn't know cop jargon because it was like my first day. Right? Yeah. And they're like, oh, 10, blah, blah, blah. you know, 10, 26, right? And I couldn't understand, you know, a fucking word and everything. And then on top of it, this is Laredo, right? So all the, almost all the cops are like Mexicano, Mexican American, and like heavy border accents, you know. So it's, so it sounds like this. <laughs> you know? And I'm like, what yeah. Right? And <laughs> so then the, the Metro editor goes, Did you hear that? And I go, what? And she's like, "There's a shooting." And I go, "Oh, okay. How did you catch that?" But yeah, yeah. And she has. She like writes down the address, right? <laughs> she Gives it to me, and then I go, I find my way there, and I get there before the fucking cops get there, right? Oh, and it's a drive-by shooting. Somebody has like gunned down, with who knows what, an AK-47 or something. They've gunned somebody down in a phone booth, right? right. A glass phone booth. It's like on the corner, right? Just back yeah. there, were in, you know, on the corner. And so I, I like pull up. And I'm, like, looking around, I'm thinking, looks like somebody's been shot. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then I hear the sirens, right? And I'm thinking, I better not be here when the sirens get here, you know? Yeah, <laughs> so I kinda just like, hanging out. So I kind of, like, back up, like, a half a block, and then just sort of wait, and the cops show. and Yeah. And then that was, like, my first story on a... My first day at yeah, <laughs> yeah. my first newspaper job yeah. was like a gangland-style <laughs> murder. Right? Highest police, stakes. That's not yeah. the stuff. That's not the stuff they run you. They do drills, and you know, in journalism 101 at college. Like, yeah, They're yeah. like, okay, we're gonna recreate a gangland <laughs> shooting. <laughs> Just try <drive> by. First <laughs> yeah. day. That's what we're doing. We're gonna pretend yeah. that this is a phone booth. Someone's <laughs> oh, been massacred.
1: Yeah, that's intense. <laughs> so so it was good it was good it was good training because yeah. I spent six
0: months there yeah lots of crime in Laredo oh really yeah because so then was it a, it was yeah it's not that big of a town Uh, like there's like 200,000 people but because it's a border town and it's probably one of three or four busiest crossings okay And like millions of people go through there like, uh huh and they cause fucking havoc, right? You know, yeah. they, they're smuggling guns south, they're bringing drugs north or whatever. Yeah. So it has a shitload of news for, yeah. like a tiny town. Yeah. Right? So, so it was good training because, you know, you had to, like, cover everything.
1: Right. So, and are you from Indiana then? No. Oh. No, no, no.
0: I ended up in Indiana because my mother, who was uh, a, a, a sort of like a traveling gypsy but has no gypsy blood and... Never served in the military. Moved all <laughs> the time. Happened to do it, yeah. She just, well, you know, in hindsight, now I know that she had, like, serious psychological issues that, that mm-hmm. basically stuff would stress around out. She's like, we have to move. And so we would move, and sometimes we'd move from, like, Laredo, Texas, to Chicago. Chicago to New York City, you know, New York City to whatever, right? New Mexico. I mean, We just moved all the time. And so when I was 14, we ended up in Indiana because her then husband, her, four, I think he was the fourth husband, she was married five times. So her fourth husband worked the winter in an in a iron foundry in mm-hmm. Warsaw, Indiana. And then in the warm months he would uh, pick crops, yeah. he was, a, he was a, a farm worker, and he would pick crops in the south and the southwest, but then in the winter time he would go to this foundry because they paid good money. Yeah. And so that's how he ended up there. And then I stayed there, and my mom left, and you know one thing led to another, and eventually I, yeah, you know, went down to, did, you know, get that first job in Texas? <laughs>
1: yeah, with the phone booth. <laughs> the
0: phone booth. Uh, the, the phone booth maintenance job. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. Uh, did you? Was that ever frustrating then, having to move so many times, or was it just sort of, oh, this is what yeah, we do? Yeah, no,
0: it was, but it was also like one of those things where, you know, if that's the only life you know. Then you don't really know, yeah. like how disruptive it is. Mm-hmm. You know, in hindsight, it's like you now I realize, wow, it was it's it's astounding. I learned to fucking read, <laughs> you know, and uh, but but I didn't realize that it was kind of a problem until at some point in my teens. In fact, I think it was when I got to Indiana. I actually stayed in Indiana with my mom and, uh, for, um, and I had siblings, but. Uh, We were there for more than a year. Okay. Sometimes we before that we would move twice a year, sometimes three times a year, right? So we were there for more than a year, and I remember someone saying, "Hey, James, remember last year when we, you know, went down to the whatever?" And I was thinking, I don't think anybody's ever said that to me before. Like, hey, remember last year? You know, and so that's like a novel thing, right? And so it kind of struck me that I was that kid, right? Moved all the time. Uh, so it it had to you know it it I, it, I know in hindsight we don't like analyze it you know it created certain <laughs> problems but the one thing that was good about it was that when I became a journalist uh, daily journalism uh, is all about a news story every day sometimes two stories a day you know, and sometimes it's a new city you know from one day to the next or every three days or whatever so. In some ways, it was weirdly great training for that okay, yeah. because I could like show up in a completely different city I've never been to before, or go to you know some place where I've never been and do that story, right? right? Because it wasn't such you know, yeah. like a freaked out thing to me, yeah. So it was weird. It was, yeah. it was, it was, but it was like a weird craft. You know, yeah. to kind of pick up.
1: Did anything throw you off off guard then after that first day with the with the phone booth or? Oh, the radio. Was
0: it? Yeah, yeah. No, uh, no not that much. Really. Yeah. No, it, it, you know, I, 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 think, I think, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a real adrenaline rush when you're working sort of at that pace, too. Yeah. Like, I've had different journalism jobs, some, like, magazine editor, much slower paced, you know. Mm-hmm. But a daily cop reporter job or something mm-hmm. like that, uh, yeah. there's a, just an adrenaline rush that comes with it. Because, yeah. you know, you kind of hit the ground running the minute you walk in the door, and then you have deadline because you're trying to meet, you know, the, the evening print cycle or whatever it is. Uh, and and so you're kind of always, you know, sort of on this clock that's that's kind of going. Yeah. And uh, and then sometimes, you know, sometimes it's it's you're in the newsroom working on a story that's relatively conventional about city, city council doing something, and then um, somebody crashes a pickup th- truck through a Luby's restaurant in in uh, what was it, uh, Waco, Texas, uh-huh. and you know and and shoots. You know, twenty people, what? and 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 then the editor says, "Okay, I need you know three people to get on a plane, you know, in one hour, right, yeah, or something, right? Yeah. And you fly there, and you're covering that story for three days or whatever it is, right? Yeah. So you just it, you have to kind of like get used to that spontaneity, you know, those that kind of news coverage. Yeah. You know? so it's 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 cool. I think the uh, I, I really enjoyed it. The um, uh, uh, the, the my favorite probably job job in journalism to, my two favorite jobs were one was I was a reporter in Austin Texas on the state desk and I was basically a general assignments reporter and my job more or less consisted of like, getting to my pickup truck and driving around the state and, until I just found stories you know sometimes I kind of knew before I was going but sometimes it was just like I'd be driving down the freeway and Oh, there's a sign that says John Lennon uh, Memorial Park. I'm thinking, is that John Lennon the Beatle? You, know? yeah. <laughs> you know, and I pull in and find out that for whatever reason they named this park after John Lennon in South Texas. Yeah. You know, that kind of stuff, and, which I, I just loved. And then, uh, and then that job also had a lot of, uh, you know, had some breaking news, of course, and that sort of thing, but it was a mix of that kind of stuff. And then in Mex- I was in Mexico City, and I covered Central America Mexico and technically Cuba although I only went in once because they just didn't let people in that much at that yeah. time and uh, and that was, um, that was that was that uh, was really interesting because I could develop stories that were about Mexico that weren't the the stereotypical stories you know, it's like the drug story the drug right. trafficker story whatever uh, so features which I really enjoyed but then with, you know, periodically there was always some kind of breaking story that you'd have to go cover and so you know you might because I covered Central America I might cover like I covered a coup in Guatemala or um, you know some rebel uprising in southern Mexico or the assassination of a bishop in Guadalajara or whatever mm-hmm. right so you just you know they just call you and say some just came across the wire that said the bishop was assassinated. You know, yeah, and you get on a plane and you go away. Right? That was that was that was great fun. Yeah, yeah. Well, that sounds. Uh, that I enjoyed.
1: Yeah. Uh, so then, what was what would you say was a challenge for you? Because it sounds very. Uh, it's at least the way it sounds is you're pretty uh, easygoing with this spontaneity, with going here yeah. to there, here to there, and writing. Yeah. Uh, so what was a challenge then, for you? In journalism.
0: Yeah. Um, it's a good question. I think maybe, uh, maybe always having to sell stories to really like sell the story about my community, mm. and by that I mean, you know, like even now, um, the percentage of Latinos or people of color in mainstream journalism is pretty low. Mm. Uh, and in fact, I think the while the total number of Latino journalists in all forms of journalists in the country has gone up, with some, you know, to some degree, the actual percentage as compared to the general population has gone down, and um, which so so we're not gaining in terms of our presence in as many places. But um, that aside, you know, that that's now. So then, you know, a lot of the people that were in the business were like the first, you know, like oh so and so was the Arnold Garcias the first editorial editor editorial writer for a mainstream newspaper mm. there was a lot of first going there's still a lot of first now right? yeah. but there was yeah. a lot more first then and so I would pitch stories and and because almost exclusively all the editors were white right all the decision makers about you know, who approved stories and so forth um, you know sometimes it was just like a hard sell because they just didn't like connect yeah either. and then sometimes you you, you get kind of um, well, there was always this thing with Latino journalists and journalists of color in general where they would go to work for mainstream newspapers and the tendency of the news, news organization was to assign you to the Latino stories or, or the black stories, if you yeah. know, like, whatever. And, and, uh, and some folks really resisted that because they felt it was limiting in terms of their you know career goals, right? They were like, oh, just make me the city hall reporter or just make me the whatever, right? Yeah. The politics reporter. And I got that, but I also we also knew that uh, sometimes there were just sometimes often there were a lot of stories that just would never get in the paper if I or someone else you know walked up to the editor and said, hey, we should really cover this. Yeah, yeah. You know, it just wouldn't get in the paper, right? And um, and so it was you know there was always this kind of like tension between do you want to sort of not be pegged, you know, kind of pigeonholed, or do you, yeah. do you want to cover your community? And I I kind of made a decision early on that 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 I needed to cover my community and I wanted to cover my community and in some ways that spilled over into my theater because yeah. I'm writing a lot of original works about the Latino community and occasionally delving off into multicultural stuff but uh, I'm doing that knowing that kind of de facto there's a smaller audience. You know, mm-hmm. If I decided to form, you got up a theater and said to myself, I'm going to do... Um, you know, I'm going to do uh, uh, Greece and Mary Poppins and whatever, and just do it as a, as any mainstream theater company would. Um, Financially, I'm sure that would be a much better thing for me. Right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, but that's not what's what's driving me to write. So I'm not as preoccupied with, with that, you know, reality, if you will, of the theater world here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, even now, like you know, even now, I I notice uh, like Arizona Theater Company. Uh, is trying and I think stumbling to figure out how to how to um, respond to like the obvious demographic changes you know mm. in the city right third of fourth of I mean forty percent of Phoenix is Latino now and the city's majority minority right so it's just the city of Phoenix mm-hmm. Phoenix the Mar- Maricopa County area is probably a third to thirty three or thirty four percent Latino. Um, and so that's their audience right but for a long time they were kind of picking the shows that they always pick so right. like Cabaret and Oklahoma and you know whatever right the stuff that was like the money makers for them you know money in the bank and um, but I think they're they're starting to kind of sink in that well at some point um, there's going to be so many Latinos and if they're not bringing them in now and starting to bring them in they're just going to go broke right you know, because they depend. I mean, nonprofits like Arizona Theater Company were well, certainly minded, but mine was you know a small, mine's a small company. But even the big ones depend on this combination of, of big time donors, money people, mm-hmm. old money usually folks who are like you know they give them a million dollars. Like Arizona Theater Company, a couple of years ago, almost went bankrupt maybe two three years ago. I mean, they almost collapsed right towards the mm-hmm. end of the recession. Okay. And and if. A a private anonymous donor hadn't like put two million dollars on the table, you know, they would go down, right? Uh Because they're like a ten million dollar budget, right? But if you're doing those shows and you're running at that scale and and you're doing it as a nonprofit and you're depending on donors and and, and grants and ticket sales, um, and ticket sales are an important part of your uh, budget, but not like, you know, the most important necessarily. And then something happens to upset that delicate balance. Yeah. Even at a ten million dollar budget, you know, you either do one of two things: you say, "Okay, we're gonna run, we're gonna produce shows with a four million dollar budget, right?" or whatever, or you find somebody to give you money fast, right? And that's kind of what happened to them. Yeah. But they survived, and they got out of the recession, and the economy's picking up, and um, and so they've I think they've recovered, but I can tell they haven't recovered like fully because. You know, like I've noticed, they move their offices to a facility to, to cut some cost, and they're sharing some space and this and that. You oh, know. Okay. But they are still doing the shows that they do, basically at the at the caliber that they do them. Right. Mm-hmm. So, Arizona Theater Company will, you know, sometimes say, "Okay, we can do this show." And we're going to hire an equity actor from New York, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that, right? And they'll they'll bring in some people locally, and maybe somebody's equity, and maybe somebody's not, but they got to pay them equity scale. Yeah. So that makes their budget go up, and all those various things. Um, So they're still doing, um, I think, very similar caliber theater at the level, production wise, that they had in the past, but I can also tell, you know, they're still, you know, budget is budgets are tight, and then Arizona no what was it called uh, Phoenix Theater okay no not Phoenix Theater Actors Theater Phoenix which used to be run by a guy named Matt Wiener, who's still here in town but you know that went bankrupt you know totally bankrupt that was like a three million dollar a year operation and it just it just went belly up yeah because for the same reasons that Arizona Theater Company went belly or almost went belly up but they just couldn't you know fix the you know the gap right yeah 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 you know. What? It sounds. I have the thing about me is my my great advantage with new is that I have nowhere to fall. Like I'm at the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like it's like I'm that place guy place on, on the curb, you know, who's like, hey, need some coffee? Yeah. yeah. And they're like, oh, okay. Uh, oh, by the way, I'm gonna do a monologue. You know, and so yeah, I, yeah. I can I can still do the monologue even if I don't get that cup of coffee. <laughs> right, right, yeah. <laughs> so I'm like down, I'm like at the bottom of the rug Yeah, know, so.
1: and that's that's sort of. uh in a like why I do the podcast and it's I i love talking to people and um yeah. it's it's not for for sponsorships or to become famous. I'm yeah. number one in Nigeria.
0: But yeah. um I, I don't know. You too uh, Yeah, I'm, both of I'm us the number one Chicago monologue in Nigeria. <laughs> Nigeria,
1: perfect. We should team up. Uh and so it's it's just doing it for the love of doing it. Right? And yeah, there's not that um yeah, yeah. No, I, I guess that expectation of 10 million dollars or whatever Uh, (laughs) you it sounds like you have this really strong tie to your culture and your background where does that come from because you jumped around a lot as a kid
0: yeah that's a good that's a no that's that's a good observation because um, in some ways I have some very strong ties culturally to to my um, to my background in terms of generationally because Uh, we traveled with some pretty good regularity to mexico okay you know and and um and so those ties you know were there. like i used to go with my father he would my mom and dad divorced early but my father would come like pretty much anywhere i was in the country would pick me up in the summer and take me to mexico and i'd stay on the border with him for like four weeks or whatever so so i had exposure on the mexican side right and then my mom was from Mexico which is over on the east coast we would go there sometimes, you know, um, mostly northern Mexico. So we would go into Mexico, and we weren't really there, there as tourists. You know, we were there because we had family there, right? Mm-hmm. So, so I would get you know that, and then, and then, um, you know, then sometimes we would be in states. We would be around, you know, family and kind of large numbers of family or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. But to your point, the moving. Um, I think also Americanized me in a lot of ways that I might not would if if I had stayed in Laredo, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure I wouldn't be the same person. And and it Americanized me. Uh, I know when I went to journalism school uh, in Texas at, at UT, there was this uh, professor who taught broadcast, and he consulted with like TV stations to um, they would bring him in and say, you know, oh, you know. You know, Sandy, you know, Sandy Bandy or you know, the anchor, you know, is having yeah. trouble with something language wise. And so he would come in and he would and he would consult them on on, on kind of speech and, and, and delivery and things like that, right? So he had this ear for, for dialects and things. And, oh, and, and and I remember when I went in to, to start taking his classes, he was puzzled, right? He was like, I can't place you. You know, <laughs> I can't he's like I'm, I'm just, I can't quite you know he couldn't quite figure out like what part of the country I was from you know mm-hmm. and it was because it was kind of from all parts of the country yeah, yeah. maybe with the exception of the south you know we hadn't lived in the south right you know so uh, so that, that's part of that right and then I think also intellectually you know and educationally that kind of rubbed off too because sometimes I would be in Manhattan in that education system and sometimes I would yeah. be in Laredo which is a vastly different education system you know, so I would pick up things here and there, but because we moved and because my mom wasn't a reader, I have I have this I think I had this line somewhere in one of my plays about how in my house growing up um, uh, the only uh, the only books we had in the house uh, were was the Bible hmm. and the phone book. Mm-hmm. Right? and I think we actually read the phone book more than the Bible right so, <laughs> <laughs> Damn, so it's like a miracle that I became a writer it really is I mean if you think about like that yeah, like yeah. you sort of think oh writers they generally come from homes where there are readers mm-hmm. you know not necessarily writers but at least readers that's generally yeah. people's background and but that wasn't that wasn't the case for me at all
1: so then how did that get introduced into your life do you, can you pinpoint a time or? Uh, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Specific. I think. I think. Um, well, I think that. I think that I was kind of innately a writer, in in the most kind of generic sense. In that, as a kid. Um, you know, like kids daydream, and I used to sort of write lyrics to made up songs, right? Yeah. And like now, when I talk to students, particularly younger students, you know, I try to tell them when I tell them what writing is, because they're like, you know, they're like, "What is writing? Does that mean you get a pen and you put things on?" You know? Yeah. And I and I try to tell them that it's it's really the uh, uh, kind of create. Kind of the creative product that comes from playing with words, whether you're doing hip hop or whether you're doing poetry or whatever, you know, whatever form it takes, and it could be songwriting, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that that I had that for whatever reason, just kind of innately, and then. But in terms of like saying, oh, I want to put sentences together and make stories, um, just over the course of the years in school, mm-hmm. you know, I was, I think I was kind of naturally a writer. I just didn't have much educational training, but teachers would here and there say oh you know this is nicely done oh your story about the spider or whatever you know it's nicely done so I think it just kind of like hung around in my head um and then uh but then uh I when I when I sat down there were a couple years uh uh like two or three years where I just went through the spurt of reading and I was reading like a hundred books a year I I mean literally like that much and and uh I was in my early twenties, uh, and I'll tell you the context here in a second. But so I was reading, you know, these tons and tons of books, and I was reading for whatever reason a lot of Hemingway at the time. Mm-hmm. And it occurred to me that Hemingway, um, uh, besides being a novelist, he was a journalist right before that, and he was famously a journalist, like in the Spanish American War and this and that. And so um, I thought, oh, that's how you become a writer: you become you, you become a journalist, and then you can write novels. That was sort of like my picture okay. of it, right? And um, and so, I, so from that point, then I kind of thought that's the way I'm going to become a writer. Right? Yeah. But it was it was fortunate that I was in this place, which was um, uh, I was um, in uh, jail on a drug charge, on a, on a uh, uh, technically it was like a delivery of cocaine charge. I I handed a, a cop uh, a gram of cocaine. I think it was a gram. And I can and so that constituted delivery of a controlled substance, and so I went to jail, and 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 so I, I suddenly had all this time on my hands, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Okay. And so literally, I was just like, just gobbling books, you know, and just like, you know, like candy. Right? Yeah. And so it was like a three, three and a half year stretch, where, and we just like, it just so it was <laughs> like a crash course in, in sort of anything that, you know, from the Koran mm-hmm. to Hemingway to Shakespeare to whatever, right? Yeah. And that was just like you know, pouring it in, right, and uh, it was interesting because, it, it was interesting because I tried to write, you know, at that time, and, and uh, there used to be a bit that, uh, who was it, um, it was one of the Wayne brothers, used to have this okay. character who was this guy who went to prison and then he became like a prison lawyer or whatever and he educates himself and then he uses all of these, like, really big words out of context. You remember that guy? Uh, yeah, I <laughs> vaguely remember. Like, yeah, he'd yeah. say, like, the, you know, like, like the, the epitome of my, you know, cacophony tells me that, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's just using like, them wrong. It's <laughs> just like, it just like it was, it was, but, but they're all, like, really multi-syllabic words, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and so so there was a little while where I like that. like, I was that guy, except not quite so ghetto, right? I wasn't so ghetto, right? But I was sort of that guy, like, kind of, you know, awkwardly writing things with words that were inappropriate, you uh-huh. know, <laughs> and way too... You know, way too pedantic, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, uh, and but eventually, I, you know, kind of figured out. Oh, okay, that's that's not working.
1: Yeah. <laughs> what have you noticed in as far as news media or journalism in general? How it's evolved? I guess since '84 uh, to now. I mean, it's just it's been such a
0: jump. Yeah, it's a big different. It's a it's a different animal. Um, Especially when you throw in social media.
1: Yeah, you yeah. know, I think I think
0: the single biggest thing, there's a, there's a, you know, I don't want to sound like Bernie Sanders here, although I like Bernie, but there's, or maybe it's more Elizabeth Warren right now, but there is a, a corrupting force in America, and that force is is dollars. I mean, it's it's it's, we've always had. Capitalism is a part of American society to one degree or another. And you could argue that owning a plantation was really a corrupting kind of way to make, you know, money. Yeah. Right? <laughs> that's a corrupt that way to make money. Pretty <laughs> more, right, yeah. Yeah. In the scheme of things. That's, that's worse than I think uh, but corporate journalism. But but I think in terms of where journalism has come, you know, if you if you kind of read history a bit, you realize that sort of the heyday of journalism was probably fifties, sixties, seventies, to some degree the eighties. Uh, in part because it had it had kind of established you know the most serious for us kind of ethical standards right that it, you know I mean, earlier than that you know going back to of course the, like the nineteenth century there was a lot of things that were supposed to be journalism but they were just like there's a, a, a did you see Hamilton have you seen Hamilton I have seen yeah so yeah, yeah. remember in Hamilton there's this there's this fight between Hamilton and I like, was Jefferson or uh, and they're like arguing in the newspapers, right? But oh, they're yeah. just like making shit up about each other, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just <laughs> like complete say, yeah. fucking lies, like stuff, like the stuff that comes out of Trump's mouth, right? Yeah, now, right. Just complete fucking guy. lies. <laughs> I mean, they were like, right? so they, it was like, you know, yeah, your father killed tried to kill Castro or whatever, you know. (laughs) know, So, 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 I mean, so that's yellow journalism, right? That's like the shit that was going on then because anybody could own a newspaper and like run 400 copies and distribute it in town or whatever. And so eventually time passes and there's like some standards that get established and, you know, maybe in the, maybe as early as really it starts to get kind of solid in in the 40s, you know, so, so there was this sort of period. So now though, those ethical standards still exist but they're clashing like every day with corporate pressures mm. and corporate pressures is all about profit and it's all and it's not just profit it's this year we made x amount of money and and next year we may need to make three percent more okay. i don't know how we're gonna do it but we gotta make three percent more because yeah. if we don't then that means you know that um we've stagnated and if we stagnated then we must not be doing something right and so they can't just make the same amount of money even if they make 80 fucking billion dollars yeah. you can't make any Dollars next year so <laughs> that's you know I mean that's, that's if you think about like corporate profit um, impulses that's really the fundamental thing right that sort of drives it right and everybody's measured by that and so what's happened is that that has spilled over into every form of mass media that exists and um, uh, including newspapers and, and that's why newspapers are closing down because they just can't keep up the profit margin that yeah. and that is being demanded by corporate uh, corporate America and but that doesn't necessarily mean that journalism as it maintains its quality what's happened is that there's still a lot of people out there doing really solid solid ethically based journalism but they're competing in this biosphere if you will of things like what they're doing and then oh here's TMZ you know or and oh here's yeah. um, not people but what's that other one that's kind of like people that it's like huh. a real tabloid kind of well the Inquirer has always been around but there's yeah. another one. but you know uh, so there's just these really profitable things <clears throat> out there now well I mean if you look at like Fox mm-hmm. you know even Fox as compared to say CNN right you know Fox breaks every standard imaginable <laughs> you know particularly <laughs> in prime time with regards to yeah. you know it's like, like that Guy Hannity guy is a key advisor to the president of the United States. We're like, well, how does anyone expect him to be in any way, shape, or independent, right? And and the thing is, he admits, it. I'm not independent, right? You know, I'm not, <laughs> you know. And, and uh, if tomorrow, you know, the president called me and said, hey, I want you to like, be my chief of staff, you know, he might take the job for the right money, right? Right. You know, and so... so New York Times, which I think still does great journalism and the LA Times and the Washington Post and certain other publications all over and Democracy Now and if you see see Democracy yeah. Now and you know, there's all these news entities that are out there still doing very good journalism, but they're doing it in a completely different environment now. And so the trouble with that is that is that the average person who didn't study journalism, who may not be a reader, who whatever, wakes up in the morning and they go they go, Oh, there's forty three choices Right. And, and this one, for whatever reason, looks a little more appealing to me today and so I'm going to flip it on and that, you know, that may be TMZ, mm-hmm. right, or, or whatever it is, right, it may be, you know, one of these, what I think are kind of sort of bought, bought outlets, I mean, that, that is making decisions day to day based on, on profit and not, you know, what's really news or not news and so it gets in the mix and people just get confused. You know, it's not their fault, really. For the most right. part, it's not their fault. Um, I think. I think ultimately, it's it's. I, I've been thinking a lot about this recently in terms of the Trump phenomenon. But part, of this, part of the part of the the power of Trump is that Trump understands that a certain number of people in America don't know anything at all about civics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Like, if somebody asked them, you know, what are the three branches of government, they would have trouble. Explaining that, yeah, right? because they just didn't care when they were schooled, or, 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 or somebody taught them that in a rote manner and didn't explain the importance of it. Like, here's the three branches of government, and it, oh, that's nice. Okay, you got it memorized. Right? Yes. Okay, here's your right. test. But they didn't really explain the function of it, right, and what that had to do with preventing a monarchy. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean that's really yeah. what it's about, right? They said we have a king, he sucks, we're gonna create a government that prevents kingdomship, mm-hmm. right? It's basically what they tried to achieve, right? In mm-hmm. fact in fact, George Washington famously they, they told George Washington that, you know, Oh, we want you to keep being president. Right because yeah. there were no limits at that and he said no. Mm-hmm. Because he got it, right? It's like mm-hmm. no, no. If we do that then I'm just becoming you know, King George. The same, king. Yeah, yeah. So so I think that's just one example, but I think there's a big hole in our educational system in which uh, students are not being taught kind of these core values that are really at the bedrock of what a democracy is supposed to be. So then they grow up, uh, and somebody comes along and they dress like a president. You know, yeah. <laughs> they look like a president because they're white. Because all oh, you're out a president, but yeah. white. Um, I'm a man, I'm white, and I'm in a suit, yeah. so they look like a president, uh, and uh, and they just they just buy it. Right. Right? They just buy it, and then and then when someone comes along and says no, but what he's doing is challenging mm-hmm. the fundamental tenets of our justice system or the fundamental tenets of our of our congressional mm-hmm. oversight powers and what that. They just don't... It doesn't sink in. They just yeah. It doesn't sink in. Because they weren't educated, you know, uh, about... And I'm it's not with everybody. I mean, there's some people who just... There are people who are, for instance, corporate leaders who have, have said, I'm going to make a deal with the devil. They know right. what the three powers of government are supposed to do. The three branches of government. They We're understand learned. clearly. They've been taught it. They've been, They've thought about it. They've read about it, right? But they also mm-hmm. know that if I go with what this guy is saying... Mm-hmm. This, this you know uh, this go around, I'm going to make 1.6 billion dollars more than I did last year. Yep. And so they cut a deal with the devil. Right? Mm-hmm. They just go go with it, right? And and um and so you know Trump knows that too. So he knows that he knows that sort of his two core populations are the people who are not informed and and too preoccupied with their day to day lives. And are willing to let somebody else take complete responsibility for thinking about the future of the country, yeah. <laughs> and then and then these other people who are really part of that corporate monster that has taken that has widened the income gap like by forty times in the last forty oh, years. I mean, it's literally like sometimes if you get a chance, Google um, Robert Reich, uh, who uh, who tracks Robert Reich R E I C H, who was in the Clinton administration who tracks um, things like this like the income gap and poverty rates and housing issues and whatever and he, but he has a terrific like uh, accessible way of like explaining this okay. stuff right but he charts you know starting like in around the early 80s you know this this growing and growing and growing and concentration of wealth right that's been going like this and then basically a wage scale that's been sort of going like this and then public services like housing that have been going this, like this yeah. Right, so these are countervailing trends that can only produce one thing. They they produce well. They produce tremendous wealth for a very small number of people, which is what Bernie talks all about all the yeah. time, right? Uh, and I think it it it, it has a destabilizing force on our society because, like here in Phoenix, the economy is quote unquote booming again, but we're short like about a hundred thousand rental units, right? How the fuck did that happen? Yeah. I mean, we're short. Like, think about this: four and a half million people were in this area, and we're short a hundred thousand rental units. That's like mind-boggling, right? So, of course, what are people doing? Well, people are. Some people are living in the streets, right? Because they can't afford it. Some people are doubling up with families. Some people are sharing, you know, three or four people to an apartment or whatever. People are making do. They're not, you know, all in the streets by any means. But the the the, the lack, of, the the fact that in the Reagan administration, Reagan decided, in large part because of the war on drugs, um, that money need more money needed to be spent on law enforcement and prisons than on housing, right? And if you look at the Reagan years and you look at his budget, you know, money for prisons goes up, money for housing goes down. Well eventually that catches up, right? Yeah. And you're not building enough affordable housing. You're not building enough housing in general. And um, and guess what? Then you end up with the single largest population of people in prison in the developed world on the planet yeah yeah. <laughs> and now they're like yes. and then now they're like now every governor's going like, well we can't afford this it's like well whose fucking fault yeah. is that <laughs> you locked them up you know they're like well, we can't afford to keep them you know and so this is what the marijuana this is what the marijuana um, uh, legalization is all about in many ways it's, it's about how do we cut loose you know some enormous percentage of our prison population right uh, and and stop feeding that you know monster uh, oh, why don't we why don't we approve marijuana legalization because it can pass now because all the fucking boomers who were smoking weed back in the 60s are going to vote for it right because they're high propensity yeah. voters right? yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. so it's all linked right it's all linked and, and in the meantime that's probably the only short term way they're going to empty the prisons out is by legalizing marijuana because what will happen and this has already happened does this happen yeah I think in California but in other states, but once they fully legalize recreational marijuana, yeah. then they basically have to say, "Okay, who do we have in jail right now for possession of marijuana?" Oh, well, we have these, you know, eight thousand people. Well, we got to cut them loose. Yeah. We can't keep them in there <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because people are out there smoking weed yeah. and they're not getting thrown in jail. Right. <laughs> so then, where would those people go? Well, especially with no housing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, no, well, there. that's that's part of the issue. You know, who right. knows how long they've been in there, or whatever. But they get you know put back out on the streets and um, you know and hopefully uh, they haven't picked up like another you know skill while they're in jail right? <laughs> you yeah. know or you know whatever but um, but I mean they're just the whole point is that there are consequences right to these decisions that are being yeah. made and so many of those decisions are being made because of corporate greed really is what it comes down to mm-hmm. it really just comes down to straight no bullshit corporate greed yeah yeah and um uh, you know, and and I I'm one who acknowledges fully. I was never really a super fan of Clinton anyway, President Clinton. But Clinton so what we had in sequence. Was we had Reagan, then George W. Bush, or George Bush Senior for one term, then Clinton, and then um, George W. Bush mm-hmm. after that. Right now, every one of those presidents, including Clinton, every one of those presidents believed in deregulating business. Right, Clinton Clinton was cast as kind of somehow a progressive uh, Democrat. Yeah, yeah. But really, he was a centrist, capitalist, slightly left-leaning, you know, <laughs> whatever. And, and so, but he was, he was all in on deregulating yeah. um, corporate America. And so you have Reagan, George, w, George Bush, Clinton, mm-hmm. George W. Bush, uh, and then just to, to somewhat a lesser degree, uh, Obama. Because Obama was like just a better human being, but also, (laughs) also he had some leverage on corporate America because they had fucking blown up the economy right before he walked in the door, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. literally blew up the fucking economy. Yeah. I mean, this is how bad things got. George W. Bush, oil man, you know, full throated capitalist says we're going to bail out uh, Wall Street to the tune of X billions of billions of dollars. I mean, it's corporate welfare. But he never would have fucking done that if he wasn't like looking down the abyss of a pit that basically said, you guys are fucked, right? And if you don't do something really dramatic that any, any Republican worth two cents, you know, a, a Republicanism would never do, right. unless you do this, you're fucked, right? right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's been some good stuff written about how, how close we were to utter economic collapse. I mean we I mean and things were fucked up. Yeah. I mean things got really, really bad. But we were like on the precipice of, of literally just complete collapse right? mm-hmm. and twenty percent unemployment rates and you know basically what we kinda of went through with the depression, right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: And what stopped that then? Was the, it the, bailout the, the bailouts? Oh, okay. The bailouts.
0: Think, okay. I think the bailouts were the main mm-hmm. thing because you know one of the things they had to do was they basically had to convince Wall, Wall Street and all the investors that things were stabilized and things were sliding and sliding and sliding. And so finally they said, okay, you know, who do we have to save? Right? Because there were certain people that they decided were, you know, that classic cliche term, they were too big to fail. Who do we have to save? Yeah. Can General Motors go down and the economy will be okay? No, they can't go down. You know, can so and so go down? You know, can Lehman Brothers go down? Yeah, they can go down. You know, <laughs> so they were like picking and choosing winners, like, you know, probably at big fucking round tables. You know, almost all men were probably sitting around going, Yeah, these are the people we used to say and those are people we shouldn't and, and they you know, made sort of just the right balances of choices to keep things humming, right? Now okay. what they didn't do was they didn't really change the system. But they sort of they just sort of stabilized kind of everything, right? And what Obama had in terms of some leverage when he came in, which makes him slightly different than all of the guys before, was that he had some leverage to uh, to um, reimpose regulation okay right I mean he had some which is where Elizabeth Warren came from Elizabeth yeah. Warren he hired to create uh, a consumer basically a consumer protection agency um and uh, and there were some other laws created and so there so basically during the Obama administration because the entire thing almost fucking you know collapsed he had some leverage to impose uh some some tougher regulations that kind of wheeled the corporate corporate America back in mm-hmm. right um but not dramatically. Not, yeah. not dramatically. I mean, I think the trends have still continued. Um, things just aren't as unstable as they were. Yeah. So we're all fucked. No, um.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> now I want to jump back a little unless we, bit. Unless we elect somebody who's, who's willing to, to do more regulating. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the I mean, other thing is, I've heard a lot of discussion about like Reg, regulation. You know, regulation, this is the thing, is that words get thrown around like Bernie Sanders, oh, you're a fucking socialist. I'm like, you know what? Every time you get on a fucking freeway, you're a socialist. Every time you go to, you send your kid to a public school, you're a socialist. Mm -hmm. Every time you collect your social security check, you're a socialist, right? So we have socialism in America. It's just not the controlling directional force in the economy. It's, it's, It's part of the framework of it, right? But ultimately, the controlling framework is really sort of the way corporate America kind of functions right and that's what they don't want get get token of, taken away but we have socialism right, right. Like Medicare is socialism um, uh, what else I mean you just look around this fucking building is socialism yeah right? this building we're in is socialism so um, but what freaks the corporate class out is the word regulation even maybe even more than socialism because I think they're synonymous. They think socialism is regulation on steroids, right? That's mm-hmm. what they think. And and but regulation really just amounts to well, guess what? When you and I drive down the street, I got to stop at stop signs. You know, I mean, it's it's yeah. that's it's governmental regulation. It tells me to do that, uh-huh. or I have to have a seatbelt on, or whatever. You know, or I got to pay you know forty three cents or thirty six cents of uh, gas tax. You know, to fund the freeways or whatever. Now, those are all regulatory measures, right? Um, but what corporate America just doesn't want is the kind of regulatory measures that says well I can't you're saying that uh, uh, I'm Amazon and I'm worth you know tens of billions of dollars and I don't have to pay any income tax okay but oh you're saying that I have to well I don't think I really like that regulation (laughs) like like there's there's limits to where they'll go and and that cost us all you know money ultimately yeah can you imagine like if Amazon had to pay like I think my tax rate is something like twenty-one or twenty-three percent or something like that a mm-hmm. year. If Amazon had to pay twenty-three percent of its profits That's, every yeah. year, It'd be a shit ton of money. What would we do with that?
1: There would be like all kinds of shit going on, right? I mean,
0: yeah, like, things getting paid. Yeah,
1: just order it on Amazon. <laughs> just, so just go back. <laughs> yeah. um, so, anyway, where did you go? So what happened after uh, Laredo? So Laredo yeah. to
0: Austin. Went to journalism school. Uh, finished journalism school got a, a job a newspaper in Austin okay. and then that kind of kept me in the southwest since okay. so I did that uh, that included a stint in Mexico City came back went to San Antonio ran a newspaper kind of like a New Times here okay. so I ran that came to Arizona uh, 20 years ago and I was doing a lot of online journalism that was sort of the, there, was, there was a boom and bust with um, online journalism and, and online sites in general and um, it was like a crash, and a lot of those places closed down. And then, but it was like really early days of the internet, mm-hmm. and so I did journalism like that. And then I've had other um, jobs, magazine writing, um, teaching, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, but I've always had my hand. Like right now, I'm writing a column uh, every other week for uh, online nonprofit news site called ArizonaMirror.com. Okay. You know, they pay me a pittance, but they're not. they they're, they're there, there's a new way, a new wave, of, with the with the collapse of a lot of the corporate newspapers, and the closure of that. Um, there's this whole cottage industry of nonprofit news organizations, that are 501c3 nonprofit groups, um, that are run by some nonprofit charity board, if you will, and and, and but they you know there are chains of these now. So like the one here called Arizona Mirror, I think is one of. Um, Maybe a dozen okay. publications like it, all online, different cities around the country, um, very targeted kind of coverage. Like these guys cover politics at the Capitol, and then I write stuff that kind of fits in that realm because I write a lot about national political issues and um, uh, stuff happening in the state and whatnot. But um, so they, so I write for them. I do some other stringing, you know, here and there, uh, and then I'm trying to develop right now uh, a. Uh, a weekly newsletter, a national weekly newsletter that will cover Latino news uh, in English, and basically my the niche I'm trying to fi- uh, fit into is you're out there in the world, you're part of the 60 almost 60 million Latinos in the state in the country, um, or you give a shit about you know what's happening to them, <laughs> you know, yeah. and and so you get you can get this newsletter for free, um, and uh, and it'll give you a five minute recap of what's happening in the country in terms of Latino news, so, you know, Attorney General so-and-so in California is doing whatever and, um, Julio Castro just jumped, dropped out of the presidential election and, you know, blah, 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 right? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Samuel Hayek just made a movie, uh, you know, so it's just blurred. More hard news than, than entertainment stuff in it, um, but, um but kind of it, uh, what I'm trying to do is sort of create this newsletter that kind of feels like Newsweek or Time Magazine or that sort of thing so they tend to lean towards kind of straight news hard news politics business to some degree but then they also include sometimes entertainment stuff and, yeah you know some softer stuff here. And there. yeah so that's what I'm trying to create right now uh, as a, as in fact probably next week I'll I did, like, a prototype last fall, and I'll probably relaunch it next week. Oh, cool. Yeah, so I'll send you a copy.
1: Yeah, please, please. What was... When does the transition or even start jumping into playwriting happen? Oh.
0: uh, kind of by accident. So I was in Austin, Texas mm-hmm. in... Um, it was around the late 80s, around 90, 1990, something like that. And, and I was interested in in doing creative writing because I had sort of my head that eventually I would write novels or whatever right. and someone that I knew was putting on a, like a, a festival in, um, in the Latino community and um, they had had a, this was during uh, the AIDS crisis and they had a this person was a nurse and she was a friend she, and uh, a close friend of hers had died of AIDS his name was Ray I don't remember his last name now, but his name was Ray and and so she said, Oh, I'm gonna do this um, fundraiser to raise money for AIDS victims and, and we're gonna have this festival and whatnot. And I thought, Oh, I'd love to, you know, help. And so I decided to write a monologue based on this character, based on what she had told me about Ray, yeah, you know, who he was, right? Um and um and so I wrote that monologue and performed that piece at that festival. And I'm sure I have the script somewhere in a filing cabinet somewhere. And um And so that was my, like, first foray into doing any kinds of theater. And then I started doing more, um, and and it was not, I'm sure it wasn't, like, in hindsight it's not very good theater because... I didn't really have any training. I uh, just somehow thought, oh, I can write a newspaper lead. I must be a good playwright, you know, which is not the case. That's <laughs> not the case. It's just like it's a genre thing, you know. It's like you have certain craft skills, right, that do with journalism, and playwriting, and poetry. And so finally, um, so I, I, but I kept writing, sort of not really realizing that. I even put on like a couple of uh, statewide uh, uh, theater festivals, there in Austin and okay. um, whatnot. And then, um, and then I went to Mexico City. To be a correspondent, and it got me away from like my posse, if you will, of people in Central Texas and in Texas that were in theater, and so I went to Mexico City, and and, and that job was so time-consuming; I didn't have any time to write, <coughs> and um, and I couldn't write and drink and go to work, you know. So, yeah. <laughs> so I did. So out. I just got away from it, and and I literally didn't write anything for almost ten years, and then I moved here because I was moving here to, to, to Arizona to marry my wife, and um and I kind of got back into theater here, um and then I haven't stopped writing since.
1: Yeah, and what what draws you uh, to specific stories? So another another play I did and I still love is still one of my favorites is the Mighty Vandals. Oh yeah, was I fun. Was in the, and so yes, uh, was fun. Yeah, what 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 drew you to that one? What draws you to the ones you do?
0: Well. Um, I mean, the, the subject somehow has to like affect me. I'm like, I can't sort of say, "Oh, this one might sell tickets," or "This one might mm-hmm. um, tap into the popular zeitgeist." You know, <laughs> it has to just somehow affect me on some level. Okay. And so, like um, the uh, so the one about Ray, right? I, I knew this woman, and he had died, and and I, and I was as a journalist, I was covering AIDS issues at the time, so I was running into people who were um, who had AIDS and were dealing with the whole thing. So that you know that that made me write that thing, and then I came, By the time I came here, I wrote other stuff. But then, by the time I came here, um, I think the first piece I wrote um, was uh, uh, a piece that was kind of a, a series of skits, and um, uh, almost like a uh, culture clash. If you're familiar with culture clash, uh-huh. uh, kind of a little bit like their work. They they do very good stuff. You should read their stuff. It's yeah. fun, but. Um, uh, and in their mix, there somewhere, I wrote a um, a short play, ten minute play about people dying in the Arizona desert. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that I was writing about it as a journalist at the time. But there was a particular incident not long after I got here. I want to say it was in 2000 or something like that, in which 14 people. I think first of all, I had moved here, and and I and while I had always covered immigration in Texas and knew the story. Um, it's a lot less dangerous thing to physically cross in Texas mm. because, because Arizona's desert is so fucking hot, right? Yeah. So, and then by the time I got here, yeah, when I came here, what had happened like right before that was President Clinton had, had more or less um, dumped a bunch of extra Border Patrol agents in San Diego and in El Paso. And so the effect of that was that all the people who had been coming through these regions... Because immigrants, you know, they're, they're logical, right? So they, they come to where like, there's freeways and things, right? And so they cross and then they can, you know, yeah. head north or whatever. And so they lock down the border. And so everybody started coming through Arizona, right? And, 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 and in fact, for a while, the single largest crossing point for undocumented immigrants was the Arizona desert. Right? Well, when you have tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people coming through, guess what's going to happen in the summer? A lot of people are going to die. Yeah. Right? And so the numbers skyrocketed. Right, about the time I came, it just became like a news story. And so people were dying, like 300 people a summer, you know, just in Arizona. And in one incident, and mostly they died, you know, one or two at a time, so it didn't make the news. Right? It would be like a brief in the Tucson paper, you know, mm-hmm. unidentified man, found body, whatever. So um, in this particular case, 14 people somehow got lost. And all of them died. Right. Like they got separated from a bigger group, like maybe oh, 20 gosh. or 30 people and they somehow got separated and and they got lost in the desert and they all died right like 14 people all on a, on one weekend right So it was a big story and it just affected me so much that I ended up writing a short piece about uh, a fictional survivor hmm. like one person who survived. she was a a, a teacher in Mexico and and she is wandering through the desert with kind of like an injured ankle and she doesn't know Well, she knows. Yeah, she knows that that people have been dying in the group, right, but somehow she's managed to survive and she meets a single border patrol agent who's just out on patrol and that guy who was based on a a guy that I met in um, the San Diego area was uh, previously undocumented, came as a child undocumented, grew up, became a naturalized citizen, became a cop became a border patrol agent so then his job now was to keep people from coming into the country right uh-huh. and that's not that uncommon but he was the first guy I met that did, who was doing that um, and so he he meets this woman in the desert right and you know one, one thing leads to another but basically she's like you should let me go right you, you know, you're like you're like you, me, understand. Right? Yeah. Yeah, you, you, you should, should know be. right and he's basically he's not, not an asshole but he's like trying to be a good cop he's like well I can't if I let you go Know, then I'm violating you know my code of ethics. You know, blah blah blah. Right? I've sworn my duty to the federal government to do this. Uh-huh. So that's kind of the tension in the play. Right? So you know, it has to kind of like connect with me in some way. In that way, yeah. the Mighty Vandals. I just loved. I loved the Mighty Vandals because it, uh, I, I like. I think as a journalist, I spent a lot of my career writing about communities that wouldn't normally make it into the newspaper. Right? Mm-hmm. So. In some ways sometimes I pick my play subjects that way. So the Vandals were like that because they were this team in nineteen fifty one, a long, long time ago in a very far away place. Right. <laughs> but but they were also these but they were also these like superstar fucking basketball players, right? Mm-hmm. And you remember the story. Yeah, yeah. They were scoring like hundred and thirty points a game, right? At the end of the season. You know, undefeated, blah blah all that. So they were like superstars. Um, and you know, and that's fun, right? But but to me <clears throat> the the what made that a story worth writing mm-hmm. was the fact that it was 1951, mm-hmm. and it was 12 years before the passage of the Civil Rights Act, right? Three oh, years okay. before yeah, yeah. School versus School versus Bra- Brown versus Board, um, which desegregated schools. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so they were living in an era where, when they left the court, they were on the court. They were superstars. When they left the court, they were second-class citizens. Yeah. And I love that that dynamic of of the resiliency and and it's a kind of uh, courage I think um, and 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 self pride to sort of say okay I'm going to be on the court and I'm going to do my absolute best and I know that some of these people in the audience who are cheering for me wouldn't let me date their daughter right and, and so that that I think makes is what makes it like an interesting story. Yeah,
1: do you have a, a story that you've kind of held onto in your in your head or your heart that you know would make an interesting story or play? Oh yeah. and you just haven't. There's like for ten. Whatever. like ten of those stories yeah. right now floating around. What and are, which one to write yeah. first. But what's yeah. what's the reason that it hasn't? Because I've been writing like, other stuff. Oh okay. You
0: know, writing yeah. other stuff, and you know, I, I uh, and or, and also trying to you know make a living and pay the mortgage and do all of the you know yeah. raise, raise my kids whatever. Yeah. But. Like, I have two pieces I'm working on. Uh, one of them is a one-man show about about the last night of Cesar Chavez's life. Uh, oh, Cesar yeah. Chavez uh, was from southern Arizona. Uh, uh, during the Depression, his parents lost their property. And he went to California, and then the rest is history. But he came back uh, as part of like trying to negotiate um, a labor deal with some landowners and died in his sleep in San Luis, Arizona, right? almost like within throwing distance of where he grew up. Right? So I, I wanna write, I'm writing this piece about him on that night, coming home from negotiating with this like corporate agribusiness people and, and then him talking about his sort of philosophy of life into a microphone, like he's somebody's going to write his memoirs, and he's just talking. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so it's his final thing, uh, his final night alive. And um, so I'm working on that. It's a one man show right now. It's, a, it's basically a short play because it'll be a one act. And then the other piece I'm developing that's supposed to happen in the fall is kind of a bit out of my usual. I don't want to say bailiwick, but bailiwick is such a white word. But anyway, (laughs) (laughs) my my comfort zone. Uh, uh, (laughs) I don't even know what a bailiwick is exactly, but (laughs) I'd have to look it up. Um, But anyway, it's a a play about a black family in uh, a woman, single single head of household, two or three kids, grandmother lives with them. She works at the White House. Mm. She's been a, a federal career, employee, administrative, like she's an accountant or something something like that, and so, and somehow over the years, moving job to job, she made it to the White House, and, but she's completely apolitical, and um, she just goes to work, that's where she works, and her world revolves around, you know, her kids are safe, and they're fed, and they get to go to college, and whatever, so that's what her world is, but the story opens basically a year before President Obama is elected. And so it kinda comes onto her radar and, and in particular this one precocious daughter she has, that a black man could actually become president of the United States. And it kind of awakens mm. her and the whole family to this reality, right? Mm-hmm. And to something that in a way for her she's been kind of burying, kinda of set aside. Yeah. You know, like her mom, her mom grew up in the sixties, so she's kind of a you know a loudmouth activist, but but she's always sort of, you know, it's like, I'm just going to, like, do my job and, you know, whatever. And so it kind of awakens that. And, and what I want to do is, through, this, through the family, talk about really how, how how historic and, what's the word I'm looking for? It's just sort of such a cultural shift to go from every president being a white man yeah. to a black man when President, right? And what that meant, and it meant a lot of things. Uh, uh, It it gave people like me hope, right, that things could be different, and I'm sure a lot of people. um, But it also meant, you know, things like uh, white supremacist groups, you know, started building their ranks in response, Uh right? Like the number of people that were part of white supremacist groups, Southern Poverty Law Center tracks this, you know, skyrocketed, you know, uh, during the Obama administration. Because they thought it was the apocalypse. They thought it was, right? yeah. And I'm sure that, that that in time, classified, you know, information will be released. You know that, that there were probably a number of people who tried to assassinate him, right? Mm. And black people thought talked about it all the time back then, in the beginning, when they were like, "Oh, he could win, but what if he gets assassinated? You know, maybe yeah. he shouldn't run. Maybe he shouldn't even try. Maybe he should." Right, and it's like immediately because they're thinking, hey, "I'm okay." They're thinking, right. you know, Malcolm or you know, whatever. They're thinking people in their fucking neighborhood, yeah. right? you know, yeah. getting assassinated, right? Yeah. You know, so it's a play about that. Oh man, right. And so those are like the two that are where I'm like typing, yeah, yeah. And then I have other stuff down the road, Yeah. You know? Oh, that's but fantastic. A story I really want to write, I really, really want to write, which, which is a, which is like a epic thing, is um, that's historically rooted. Is a play. Um, I don't really have a title for it right now, but I did this kind of, uh, almost improv version of it years ago in a park here, and I called it uh, Los Repatriados, which means the repatriated, and, uh, and that was the name for people during the Great Depression uh, who were Mexican. What happened was, the, 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 uh, uh, you had the, the, the Roaring Twenties, you had the Crash... Twenty-nine of the stock market. You had the ad, ad, um, advent of uh, the Great Depression, uh, and then towards the end of Woodrow Wilson's you know, Woodrow Wilson's uh, term, he actually delivers a speech in which he blames Mexicans for unemployment, right? for the unemployment rate. Right? <laughs> so it's like so sort of like Trump before Trump was yeah. Trump, and and so he says this at a fucking microphone, and it gets published in the papers all the the So then that triggers a compact of sort between local and state police and federal authorities to deport uh, Mexicans uh, and by one estimate five hundred thousand Mexicans. So now think about this. If five hundred thousand Mexicans got like just all got deported now, like all at once kind of <laughs> right, we would notice that, right? So now this is in nineteen thirty-three or something, or nineteen no, it would be nineteen thirty-two because um it's right before Roosevelt came in. they're, they're deporting folks and what they're basically doing is, in some cities, literally taking big, you know, moving vans and backing up to certain neighborhoods. They've cordoned off, they've blocked off the streets in the neighborhoods, and they're putting people in trucks, and they're driving them to the train station, and then they're loading them into cargo, uh, into um, freight cars, and they're taking them to the border, and they're dumping them at the border, right? And uh, and, and where I heard about this story was, I, I wasn't taught it in school, of course. Of course yeah, I of wasn't course. taught that in school. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and see, and you weren't either, right? Like I just told you about this. Yeah. But um, where I heard that was, I went to visit my father before he passed away. He was living in Laredo, Texas, mm-hmm. on the Mexican side, in the northern Laredo. And I woke up early one morning. We were having coffee, and and then he just started telling me about. Somehow he got on the subject of all these English-speaking kids, families showing up in his town, in his farm town, like in the '30s, mm. and. And nobody knew kind of where they came from or where they were there, but they all sort of came and, and they stayed. And and that's who these people were. They were the people who had been yeah. dumped at the border and then kind of made their way to this farm town in, in search of work or something. And then they stayed, right? And some of them were American citizens, and a lot of them, of course, spoke English because they had been in the States. Yeah. You know, just like now. Like right now, a lot of people are being deported who've been here 20 years, some some people 30 years. They don't know shit about Mexico, but they're being deported because, you know, they're undocumented. And they're going there, and they're trying to figure out how to live. Well, this was sort of like the early version of that, and and I was like, "What are you talking about?" That he's like, "Well, it's happened," and I had never heard it, and I had no clue what it was. So I finally I did some research, and I you know came across the story. There's a book called um, uh, "Decade of Betrayal" is the name of the book, like "Decade that. of Betrayal," and uh, it's 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 not the most lyrical read, but it's it's one of the few like. Really good, documentations uh, documenting up that story, right? Yeah. It's a scholar from New Mexico or somebody, and and I just thought that that has like a Spielberg sort of quality to it, yeah. doesn't it? I mean, it's just yeah. like an epic kind of story, right?
1: That many people and yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So in my, you know, and of course, what you have to do is that you have to tell these like big stories like that, sometimes just through the eyes of like one or two characters, right? So in my in my story. This, this guy comes during... Because the boom, the 20s, was like, you know, gangbusters economy, right? So it's just sucking people from Mexico who just come here to get work, right? Yeah. And because and, uh, the time period is this, is, is Mexico went from their, uh, through their revolution from 1910 to 1921, and it just, like, devastated the economy of Mexico. And hundreds of thousands of people came to the U.S., some of them settled over in uh, where, where we are, Goodyear, Tolleson, you know, all these towns like got yeah. created, and L.A. and whatever like certain communities like became, right? and established at that point. So a lot of people were coming in the twenties, drawn by the economy and and running from the revolution in the teens mm-hmm. and stuff. And so then they're all here, and then twenty nine comes, and then Woodrow Wilson says this and whatever. So then they're all getting deported, and so in my storyline, somebody who who. Essentially, was in Mexico, was a, a, a professor, right, at a kind of small university in Mexico. You know, comes with his family, and they come to the United States, probably Chicago, and 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 are drawn by you know the U.S. economy. Yeah. And so he gets a work, work as basically a laborer, right? And although he's this kind of educated person, and you know, and the kids, he has kids over the series, and those those kids are completely Americanized because they're born a year and Yeah you know one thing so they're completely you know kind of a, a, a quintessential American middle class family uh, and then suddenly they just all start getting loaded in, in, in trains right and sent back to Mexico and so I try to and then and, and then I try to follow follow the family kind of like back right and the family gets separated at some point and, you know the wife and, you know a couple of the kids get on another train and they all you know so one thing leads to another and they eventually get sort of sent back to Mexico and this happened is that a lot of American mm. citizens were deported right. like people who they, you know they were just like I mean a truck shows up right so you yeah. do have paperwork on you right and you're, oh you're Mexicans get in the car you know, yeah. and get in the truck so uh, so people then sometimes had to make their way back Yeah, like American right. citizens had to make their way back so I just think it has like a like this like big sort of epic quality I mean, it's really kind of more film but yeah. I could do it as a play but yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Those, those all three would I would really, be amazing really to story. try to see. So I usually end with more random, quicker questions because some, somebody will come here and yell at us <laughs> uh, to go. So it's just the last ones. What do you hope never changes?
0: What do I hope ever changes? Never changes. Oh, never, never changes. changes. I'm sorry. Gosh, what do I hope never changes? I don't know, that's a good question. I, I, think, I think that I hope it never changes, but I know that someday it will. I, I've written not that long ago about how we're kind of in this world in the United States where we sort of think, a lot of people think, this is just going to last forever. Yeah. But this thing That's called the, America yeah. is going to last forever. And even the most cursory reading of history tells you, no, empires die. All empires die, right? Rome, Greece, Germany, whatever it is, Right. You know, they they have their period, and sometimes it's, you know, fifty years, a hundred years, three hundred years, five hundred years, whatever. But eventually it ends, right? <laughs> and so, the thing that I think, and this is what concerns me. Just want to let you guys know, library is closing in ten minutes early. Right? Okay, Great, thank you. The thing that worries me so much about Trump, and I don't believe I'm an alarmist, is that he is the kind of figure that can trigger the unraveling mm. of the system that has sustained us these 240 years. Through all of its flaws, through all, however fucked up it was at the beginning, you know, with white people owning black people, and you know all of those things that have happened over the course of history, and the mass deportation of Mexicans in the 30s, and the internment of the Japanese, and of all of these things that are fucked up about our history, through all of that, there's been this kind of foundational sort of understanding... That actually has something to do with what democracy and, and, and justice are all about—the yeah. like the concepts of those things, right? And that's what's sustained us and, and makes us has over over the decades and centuries made us inch closer and closer to what President Obama used to call a more perfect union. We're never going to get there, but we edge toward it a little more. A little more. Say, yeah. And that's what the Civil Rights Act was about. And you know the creation of the Environmental Protection Agency was about, or whatever, right, but I also know that there have been historical figures who step into sometimes a vacuum and they unravel everything, yeah, so Hitler was one of those people right who unraveled it yeah. completely and um and there have been others you know all over the world who have done that kind of thing too and uh, and sometimes it's just done at the state level. It's happened here in you know in the United States so that's what trump. represents to me, Mm -hmm. and not just in a figurative kind of way, but in a literal way, because he literally doesn't believe in that foundational value. Mm -hmm. It just, it doesn't mean anything to him. And he's so determined to stay in power that that combination is the kind of combination that can make things unravel. Mm -hmm. Now. I still have hope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I still have hope that we're going to get past this and that a majority of Americans are going to say, what the fuck did we do? Yeah, Why what? did we pick this guy? You know, and, and I believe that that's what's going to happen in November. But I also understand that tr- Trump uh, represents, in some ways, that inevitable thing that's going to dismantle this idea that we have mm-hmm. of, of America. Yeah. And, and, uh, and so I guess I'm sort of saying, I hope, what I hope never changes is that foundational kind of belief structure that's been moving us forward. Um, but I also know that, you know, sooner or later, it'll, it'll, yeah. it'll come tumbling down because it always does.
1: Yeah. Right? Uh, what do you take for granted
0: I think I take my health for granted. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, think I, I think I do. I think I do. I think I wait too long to go to the doctor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what shows
1: are you into right now?
0: Show like television shows? Television shows, yeah. Oh my gosh. I watch if... almost no television.
1: Uh any movies?
0: Yeah, yeah, I've seen some stuff recently. You know, like I saw um uh, I saw the uh Scorsese, uh flick, what was it? Uh, uh The Irishman. The Irishman Yeah. And, um and I saw the Elton John's. So I, I uh, was what's called a, 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 Rocket Man. Yeah, yeah. You know. So I occasionally get out to, to see movies, um, and I like there's stuff that I want to watch on television, but I just don't have time to watch it. Mm-hmm. It's because I, I spend a lot of time, um, trying to pay the mortgage through my journalism or you know that right. kind of stuff, freelance yeah. stuff. But then my free time, a lot of it is 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 writing stuff.
1: The last one. Where do you find meaning in life?
0: Um. I find it in, uh, it's cliche, but I find it in trying to occupy myself in things that are, what's the word that, uh, what's the phrase that that John McCain used to use? uh, A a cause greater than myself. Something that um, isn't about me sort of saying, you know, Am I going to make money off of this? Am I going to make a profit? Am I going to get that thing of, you know, that material thing that I want, yeah. whatever it is, a nicer car or whatever it is? Yeah. Uh, or am I going to do something that in some way contributes something to this community that I'm in? Yeah. And, and so if, if I think that through my writing, that's the, the, the platform where I get to do that. And not that I believe that, oh, I'm going to write a newspaper column and it's going to change the world, or I'm going to write a play and it's going to change the world. But I do think you can change sometimes your corner of the world um, and affect people in really intimate, direct ways. You know, maybe in a room with 300 people in the audience and there's one person that goes, oh, that story you just wrote, oh, that's about me. That's kind of sort of the, opinion, the, the ultimate for me is to, yeah. is to make that contact. Yeah. Oh, that kind of thing. So that's what that's what kind of sustains me. Yeah.
1: yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you so much for being on.
0: Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, thank that was, you. That was it. Yeah, thank you, no. thank you, thank you. Thanks I already made too much table noise. That guy's gonna yell at us again. <laughs> <laughs> to what President Obama used to call a more perfect union. We're never going to get there, but we edge toward it a little We're more.